Our first reading is one of our favorite psalms. It's Psalm 23. Lots of you know that by heart, but if you would like to follow along, it can be found on page 458 in your pew Bibles and on page 92 of the children's Bibles. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, and is found on page 811 in your pew Bibles and page 216 of the Children's Bible. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the gospel of Christ. Thank you so much for your reading and for the privilege to be with you on this Lord's Day. I bring you the greetings of your uh, brothers and sisters in Christ in the Philadelphia area, uh, particularly from Westminster Theological Seminary, where I have the joy of serving. It's my pleasure to be with you uh, this Sunday and next Sunday, and uh, we're following the plan of preaching through the book of Philippians. And in God's providence, we have a wonderful text that talks about Thanksgiving, just about the time we're going to be thinking about Thanksgiving. So whoever planned the uh, layout of the reading did a good job. Uh, The text that we're going to be looking at is found on page 982 in your pew Bible. 
And as we get ready to read it and study it, I want to remind you of the big context of this extraordinary book of Philippians. Uh, the name Philippians actually comes from a great leader in Macedonia by the name of Philip. Philip was the father of Alexander the Great. He was the power that created the context out of which Alexander then went on to conquer the whole known world. And this was a place that was named for him. So it has great history. In fact, uh, later on, when the Romans came following the Greek Empire, Philippi became very important for a whole host of reasons. But what we need to remember as we study the epistle to the Philippians is that it was a Roman colony. That meant that Philippi was a little Rome. It had all the characteristics of the big capital city of the empire, but it was a smaller place, some 800 miles away in what we would call today Greece from the Roman headquarters in Italy. Now, as we think about this place, we should not only know that it was therefore a very significant point, it has a unique place in the biblical context. This is the place where the gospel for the first time will be brought from the east to the west, that is, from Asia into Europe. You'll remember the story as we find it in the book of Acts, the story of the Philippian churches in Acts chapter 16. It's quite remarkable. Uh, the apostle Paul, this great missionary, has this burden to continue to carry the gospel throughout Asia Minor, and that was the direction he wanted to go. But we're told that the Holy Spirit forbade him to go that way. And as he wrestled with God's purpose, he had in the night what is called the Macedonian vision. The vision to bring the gospel into what today we would call Europe. And for those of us that have European extraction, this is the beginning of our Christian history as a civilization. Paul goes to this place, and you'll remember the story. As he arrives in Philippi, being a good Christian with the Jewish tradition, he looks for a synagogue to fellowship with. And all he can find on the Sabbath day is a small group of ladies praying by the river. And so he goes and joins the prayer meeting. And in God's providence, he engages with a lady by the name of Lydia. Lydia is from Thyatira in Asia Minor. She is clearly a very accomplished businesswoman. She is a seller in purple. And if you have forgotten this fact that purple was a very expensive color, I should tell you a few facts. There was only one known way to get a permanent purple color into clothing in this time in history. It was by finding a mollusk, and there was in each mollusk one drop of purple ink, that's all. So can you imagine how many you would have to capture and then work on to dye a large piece of clothing? If you had a purple garment, you had to be royalty. If you were a fairly upscale, you might have a little purple running through your clothing, kind of like when you see someone driving a Mercedes, you say, oh, they've probably got a pretty good job. Maybe not quite a king yet. They might be a, in a Mercedes-Benz or something. But, you know, purple was a sign of nobility. And she was selling it, which meant that she was quite accomplished. She was part of the group. And she hears the gospel, and her heart is opened by God's grace. And she says, make my home your base of operations. And so Paul and Silas will become operational in her home. And as the time goes on, you'll remember as he's going to the place of prayer and doing his ministry, a particular slave girl that was a fortune teller, 
apparently possessed by a spirit, under the control of those that would sell her skills so that they could gain money. And she saw Paul coming by, and she said, Behold, this was one who's coming to tell us the way of salvation. And Paul began to hear this day after day as he would go around, and finally he'd had enough. And he commanded that the Spirit leave her, and her ability of prognostication evaporated. Now, her handlers were very upset. This was their means of livelihood. They were so upset that they brought Paul and Silas to the magistrates of Philippi, and they stripped them of their clothing, and they beat them with rods, and they threw them into a dungeon, and his feet and his brother's feet of ministry were put into the shackles. And in the middle of the night, while they're in the dark dungeon, psalms of praise, of glory and joy, were being lifted up to heaven. This is the most extraordinary scene. In prison, when someone is beaten in the middle of the night, you usually expect moans, but here there are praises. And as this goes on, in the middle of the evening, suddenly the whole place is shaken. An earthquake comes. It is so powerful that the doors of the jail are thrown open. His feet and the stocks are freed. The jailer rises. He's terrified. He thinks the prisoners are fleeing and his life is over. If you lost your prisoners, you didn't just get demoted. You got killed. You were executed. And in the terror of the night, the apostle Paul says to the jailer, don't worry, we're all here. And the jailer asks this great question that has been asked through the ages, and I hope you've asked it too. What must I do to be saved? Now, we don't know exactly what was all going on in the jailer's mind. Part of it might have been, how do I make sure I don't lose my life? But he had been hearing these songs. He had been seeing the extraordinary witness of these men of witness for Christ, and he heard then the gospel preached, and that night he is baptized. He believes on Christ, and Paul said, you will be saved in your whole household. And the church in Philippi is born, in a real sense, in a prison cell. Isn't that amazing? Now, the concatenation of history is extraordinary because as Paul is now writing to the church born in a prison cell, he's in prison again, this time in Rome. This is one of the prison epistles. Apparently, as we read the book, we learn that a member of the Philippian church by the name of Epaphroditus travels that long distance, possibly a month's journey, to bring a gift to Paul. That was necessary. When a man is in jail, he could literally starve to death. If you didn't have someone care for you, you may not survive. There was no provision for your needs. And so Paul was thrilled to have that gift that was brought to him. And as that gift is brought and he's cared for, he also learns about what's happening in his beloved church back in Philippi. And so Paul sets down and writes out the letter that we've been studying. It's sent by Epaphroditus all the way back. And that letter now is the one that we are about to read. And I would suggest to you what we read next is precisely the reason why Paul wrote this letter, because he cared so deeply for the church. Now, before we read these verses, remember the immediate context. Paul has spoken about the great resurrection 
the great hope of being like Christ. Paul says, I have it as my goal to be in the resurrection, to be made like Christ. And so as we come to verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, therefore... And Paul is saying, in light of this great truth of the gospel of Christ crucified, of Christ raised, now listen to my message. He says, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray together as we study. Father, would you please now open the words that we are studying and reading And may it be your spirit who speaks to us. For Lord, we are a needy people, but your word is truth. And you have given it to us that we might know you. And to know you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is to know eternal life. Please fill us with your grace. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. First of all, notice the words of extraordinary endearment that come out of Paul's heart as he writes precisely at this point. He's written this letter talking about Christology, the incarnation, humiliation, and glorification of Christ. He's written about a righteousness that is by faith alone, not by the law. He's written about panting and longing to be in heaven, being in the citizenship of glory, participating in the resurrection. And now he says to them, my brothers... You're my family, whom I love. I love you. Not just that. I long for you. I miss you. I want to be with you. You are my joy. You are the bubbling effervescence of my spiritual vitality. As I sit in this jail, you make me smile and laugh and rejoice. And you are my crown. When I think about my suffering, it's as if I put you Philippians on my brow and say, I am part of something that's triumphant and glorious. And he says, you are my beloved. That's five different terms of endearment. Do you get the point that he's getting ready to say something really he wants them to listen to? He's sweetening them up for a very difficult thing. In the middle of that, he gives his essential statement. Stand firm in the Lord. He realizes something is going on in Philippi that may be shaking them. Just like that earthquake first shook the jail when he was in Philippi so long before. What is the issue? It's going to be described in the next couple verses. But before we look at them, let's make sure we don't misunderstand what stand firm means. It doesn't mean stand still. We're always supposed to be growing and serving. It's stand firm. That is, don't let go of the things that are precious. Remember those great blessings that Paul speaks about of faith, hope, and love. May your faith in the resurrection in Christ stand firm. May your hope in Christ's cross and his redemption never leave you. May your love of God in your heart that goes to your neighbor never disappear. Let them be firm. Hold on to them. Be in this resurrection life. Now why is this so important? Because, verse 2 says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. 
Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul says, I've heard all the way in this prison cell in Rome through Epaphroditus that my beloved church is being torn asunder. The great women leaders, Luodia and Syntyche, are unable to agree. They are the fellow laborers that built this ministry. Now, they must have known Lydia, but Lydia's not mentioned. There are two leaders now that are here, and they are in tension. And so we stop for a moment, and as we think about this text, it helps us to think why it's important for us. We all agree, if we are believers, that the gospel is just wonderful. What a great hope we have. But in our hearts, some of us are saying, I know the gospel's great, but i got to live tomorrow and this week. I know at the end it's wonderful, but i got to get through all that I'm facing Someone put it this way, I'm not so afraid of the end of the world as I am afraid of the end of the month. How am I going to get through? And so in your life, you might be saying, I know the gospel's great, but you know, the relationships in my life are a mess. We're torn apart. We disagree. We can't get along. You might be saying it's not just relationships, but there's all kinds of things I'm worried about. I'm worried about my job. I'm worried about my health. I'm worried about my country. I'm worried about my church. I'm worried about my finances. I'm filled with anxiety and turmoil about my grandchildren and the kind of world they're going to grow up in. There's anxieties of all kinds. We can't get along and we're worried, and it's more than that. We start to think about them and our minds start spinning and racing and whirling and we don't even know what to do. We're thinking this, we're thinking that, and we're trying to fill it in with one thing after the other. We hear about fake news and true news and what's right and what's wrong. We don't know where to turn. Isn't it fascinating? Those are precisely the issues that Paul is going to address. He says, now, my beloved joy crown." Brothers, stand firm in the Lord. You're facing conflict. Yes. Yes, you're facing anxieties. Yes. Yes, you're facing a mind that's filled with turmoil and swirling thoughts. Stand firm in the Lord. And what we will learn in this passage is that in our earthly problems, there are extraordinary heavenly solutions. The gospel great truths that Paul has wanted us to look to are not just for there and then, they're for here and now. They are for where we are as we come to this Thanksgiving table, as we go into the conflicts and uncertainties that face us. There's so much wisdom here. Listen carefully as we look at how Paul addresses the turmoil that was in his beloved church at Philippi. Notice as we look at verse 2, he says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now here's some real practical advice. As you look at some of the relationships that are strained, that are hurt, that may be broken, do you notice how Paul begins by, first of all, 
being personal. He names the people. He actually names their name in alphabetical order. And the verb that he uses, he repeats twice. So it's not like, well, I'm entreating this one, but not so much this one. He's treating them with respect and equal dignity. And further, would you hear the word that he uses, entreat? You actually know the Greek word for this. If you've studied a little bit about the Holy Spirit, remember the parakletos, the paraclete? That word is used in Christian theology. The comforter, the one who comes alongside the encourager, the advocate, the one who's with you. This is, what is the name for the Holy Spirit? It's the very word that he uses. Paul is saying, though I'm so far removed, through this epistle, I personally am coming to you side by side. And so one of the things that we have to be committed to if we're going to deal with our relationships is that incarnational principle. We have to get close enough to say, I care For you, we must talk. That's not human nature. That's the gospel that brings us together. Would you notice further, not only is there a personal, heartfelt coming together, it's recognized in the Lord. This is possible because this is what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so he says, yes, I ask you also, true companion. Now we'll come back to that name, someone who's a true partner in the gospel. Help these women. The original actually says, come and receive them together. I can't do it. Will you go and bring them together? Reconciliation process. Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest my fellow workers. Do you hear that their history, their dignity, their value, he does not demean one over the other. He doesn't focus on the problem. He sees the tremendous value, their contribution, and their significance. I'm wondering if these are things that we do when we're seeking to restore relationships that have been strained. The wisdom that flows from here. And then notice he says, whose names are in the book of life. What he says in that phrase is, would you remember that in the midst of the conflict that's emerging, each one of these people are the elect of God. Their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. You're going to have to spend all heaven together with these people. You know, you ought to try to get along with them now then, right? They're already part of the family. Their names are there. This is a beautiful thing for us to remember then when we look at how we should get along. In fact, this passage is rich with a number of little subtle hints. If you study the names themselves, remember their names are written in the book of life. We go back to the name of Uodia. What does that mean? It means a very good trip. This is a person who lives a wonderful life, a journey to heaven, you might think. The lady, Syntyche, it means fortune has smiled upon her. She's in living with blessings. So this is a a lady with a great trip and a lady with blessings. How are people that have all of these good things not agreeing? But you know what? Those two names are true of every one of us. Are we all not on a wonderful journey to eternal life? That's our story. And are we all not blessed beyond words? Why would we know the name of Christ when millions have never heard his name? 
How blessed we are. And then it's interesting, this word true companion in the original is syzygous. Some have suggested that it might actually be a real person. There's actually one suggestion from the ancient church that it might have been Paul's wife, the true companion. That was her nickname. That doesn't fit very well, so we'll just set that one aside. But whatever this person is or is not, a yoke fellow, a true companion, someone who by his very nature brings people together. Isn't that beautiful? You have one who's on a great journey, who's been extraordinarily blessed, and you are a true bringer together of people. And these people have all worked together with a man named Clement. Have you ever heard of clemency? This is a Latin name that means mercy. The names that are in the Lamb's Book of Life are reflective, if you will, of God's saving grace. If we're all going to be together, shouldn't we get together right here in this congregation? Your names are together on the roll book of this church. Are you getting along? Your names are together in your family. Are you getting along when you sit down to have dinner together? As we look at all of that, we realize that Paul is not done yet. For this earthly problem of conflict in our relationships, the heavenly solutions that he brings go beyond his own wisdom as a mediator, as a friend, as a skillful apostle. He begins to describe the extraordinary things that God does, which includes God's choice of a people. Our names are in heaven. But he reads or gives to us these verses to read next. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now those words, I humbly suggest, are also part of what brings people together, if we would listen about them. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoicing is the ability to lift praises up to God. Can you feel the ethos that Paul has in making this call? If anybody had an opportunity to be glum and grumbling and complaining, wouldn't you think it'd be the Apostle Paul sitting in prison? Here he is writing from prison and saying, Rejoice! Rejoice in the Lord! And again, so you didn't miss it, rejoice! Your heart is to overflow. Didn't Jesus say, I've come that you might have my joy and that you might have it in the full? Doesn't 1 John say, I've written these things, that my joy might be complete as we share in this joy in Christ? The joy of the gospel is something that the Holy Spirit brings. It's part of who we're doing. In fact, joy is what we do in worship. It has been said that worship is one of the greatest unifiers we can have. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to me. I remember hearing one theologian put it this way. It doesn't matter how far apart we are. When we all start moving in the same direction, we're always getting closer and closer together. When we begin to worship Christ, when his name is lifted up, when we have joy in the Lord, our relationships begin to be healed. Worship is a great healing gift. Notice it's not just joy in the Lord, but Paul will say, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now, sadly, we don't have a word to translate this extraordinary word in the Greek language. It takes about 10 English words. Reasonableness is inadequate. It's one facet of a multifaceted diamond. 
The best word I could come up with, if I were to put it in here, it would be great heart or magnanimity, the greatness of spirit that says, I'm not always looking about my concerns, what's in it for me, how am I comfortable? But instead I'm saying, how do I bless everybody? How do I make their lives better? How do I advance their concerns? How do I understand what's the issue is? How do I get alongside and help bear their burden? When we begin to have that kind of reasonableness or other translation, moderation, meaning it's not about me, I'm not getting it all, I'm caring about you. Well, we're already beginning to heal a relationship because I'm investing in you. I care about your concern. Well, the people that you're having difficulty with, when's the last time you said, I'm not going to argue or disagree or critique, I'm just going to sit down and really try to understand them and care about them? That's called the gospel. That's what Jesus did for us. Notice it also says this, the Lord is at hand. Now theologians have debated what is this. On the one hand, some would say this is the imminent return of Christ. The Lord is just right at the edge of heaven ready to come and we all agree that the Lord doesn't have to wait on anything. He can come at any moment when he wants. He's finished the work of salvation. Whenever he's satisfied, he can come. That could be it. But the old reformer, John Calvin, said, but it's not so much in his mind the coming of Christ, but it is the providential propinquity, closeness of God in each of our lives. The Lord is at hand. Yes, even in this difficulty between Iodia and Syntyche, God is superintending even this to do something good. You say, how is that possible? Hey, we're reading about it almost 2,000 years later. God used their conflict to teach us how to find healing. God works all things together for good. God performs all things according to the counsel of his own will. The Lord performs his purposes, for there's no one who can stay his hand. God is the one of providential care. And so in the conflict that makes you say, wow, I can't even think about the gospel. I'm trying to get along here and now. Bring the gospel in because God is working here and now to use this for good purposes to help change you. I love what Paul says in Romans 12. As much as lies within me, I will live at peace with all men. Is that the commitment of your heart? That's an expression of the gospel. Okay, we said, what's the first earthly problem? Conflict. Did you hear several wonderful heavenly solutions that are showered on us in these verses? We need to go home and reflect on them and put them to work. But notice, secondly, we have another problem that comes up here. We read in verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, anxiety... It's a huge human problem. It was a problem back then. People were worried, are we going to survive the conflict between these ladies? They were worried about Epaphroditus, whom they sent. They heard he nearly died. They're worried about Paul. Is he going to go to his death as a martyr? They're worried about being Christians in Philippi, where they worship the emperor in this Roman colony, and these people worship Jesus, could cost them their life. And like you, they're worried about their income. They're worried about their families. They're worried about finances. They're worried about their health. 
Notice the strong words that Paul uses. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. Do you hear the absolute contrast? We tend to do it exactly the opposite way. We worry about everything, and almost nothing do we take time to pray. Paul says it ought to be the other way around. Listen carefully. Do not be anxious, worried, overwhelmed about anything. Someone said that worry is a lot like sitting in a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it doesn't get you anywhere. Some have said worry is a lot like shoveling smoke. You know, you're working hard, but it doesn't change. It's still as foggy as before. What do you do when you're filled with anxiety? And let's face it, this is the human predicament. The answer is, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. What a rich verse this is. Just a quick reflection on the words. Prayer is uniquely aimed at God. It is that expression of worship that we do privately or publicly, where we are having the opportunity to communicate directly to our Creator and our Redeemer. You know, when you love someone, you don't mind talking to them a lot. The idea is if you love God, you ought to be praying. And not only that, there's supplication. This word is extraordinary. It's a word that's used of one person to another person as well as to God. It's kind of said, this is what I really want to happen. Those things we yearn about, we long for, we feel about. Now, those are not the things you can easily pray in a public meeting, but you know, privately with God. The scripture says, pour your heart out before the Lord. What's ever in there, pour it right out. God doesn't say, how can you want that? You lift it up and you begin to pray about it with God. What a privilege. So we pray to God in worship. We pour out our supplications, our deep desires, what we're wrestling with, and we do it with thanksgiving. Now, thanksgiving is coming, but we're not talking about a formal day of American uh, celebration, although that's not inconsistent. It's something that goes along with prayer. I love what William Hendrickson, the commentator, said. He said, prayer without thanksgiving is like a bird without wings. It's unable to rise into the heavens. Why do we give thanks in prayer? You say, I'm praying because I'm struggling. I'm praying because I'm trying to solve. Because you have the chance to go right to God. Do you realize how many people don't even know who God is? They don't know how to come to God in Christ. They don't know that God cares. They don't understand the gospel. That means that God loves us and therefore he will hear our petitions. What a privilege to say, Lord, I don't even know how to pray. I'm overwhelmed. But thank you. I can pray. And this is my privilege. Thank you. You can never pray without thanksgiving if you know what prayer means. You're barging into the throne room of the universe and God has time for you. How many of you keep busy schedules in your business? Oh, I can't see it to three weeks from now. Instantly, God says, of course, call on me, and I'll answer you and show you great and mighty things that you don't even know. So prayer with supplication, desire, thanksgiving, and let your requests be made known to God. Now, we don't make them known to God because he doesn't know them. But God knows that when we say, Lord, this is what we're hoping will happen. We are beginning to be healed by trusting in him. Cast all your cares upon him. 
because he cares for you. I want you to know, as a seminary president, I could not survive without this verse in my spiritual repertoire. The burdens are too great. The needs are too vast. And there have been many a night when I'm tossing and turning on my pillow and saying, how are we going to survive? I say, Lord, thank you that you're in charge. Thank you that you know the end from the beginning. Thank you that you're the source of every blessing. Thank you that you can do above and beyond all I ask or think. Thank you, Lord, that you'll help me even in my weakness and I'm able to rest. And that's the promise. Notice what happens. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God, the ability to find the eye in the hurricane of the storms of life. The ability to be safe when all is going chaotically, we are protected with God's peace. It's a peace that is not able to be fully plumbed. It's higher, lower, broader. It is in the light. It is in the darkness. It's in the present. It's in the future. God is able to give us peace about all things when we are in him, in the Lord, when we claim this in prayer. And fascinatingly, do you hear the play on words? It says, this is what will guard your heart's and your minds in Christ Jesus. This prayer that brings this peace will give you a guard. Paul was in jail. He had a guard. Do you know why the guard was there? To keep him from getting out. Now, some of us had guards to keep things from getting in, right? Well, Paul says the peace of God becomes your guard to keep all those anxieties from getting into the inside, that you can rest in the greatness of God in his providential care, in his plan and purpose for you, that gospel that's way out there brings this wonderful solution to our earthly problems of saying, I have found peace in my anxieties because I'm looking to the God of the universe. It will guard your hearts, that is, all that inner life of you, but specifically, even your minds. Hear that? And so what Paul will talk about next as we conclude in verses 8 and 9 is about the racing mind. Where do we turn? How do we think? We said we have this earthly problem of broken and strained relationships and the gospel comes to show us how we can see our unity in God's providence in his care in the Lamb's book of life and the wisdom is word. We feel the tensions that we have through all of our anxieties and God gives us to this earthly problem the heavenly solution of praying and the peace of God surrounding us and keeping those anxieties from overwhelming us so that we might serve. But finally, it comes within us, the heavenly solution of our earthly problem of a scattered, racing, confused mind. He says in verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Paul says, as our minds are swirling, have we found a centering point, a focal point, a standard that brings us back I wonder if you've ever applied this verse to your entertainment. Is your entertainment something that is true and honorable and just? Are your sporting activities that you're involved with something that's uh, along these standards? 
Are what you are spending your time reflecting on privately, is it pure? Is it lovely? Is it something that's commendable that you'd be happy to bring in public and say, look, this is really good. This is powerful stuff. The Bible is giving us a heavenly solution to say, focus on these things. And you know, as you focus on these things, it says something remarkable. Paul says, first of all, you'll have seen it in me in verse 9. You learned and received and heard and seen these things, even me. Practice these things. You see them now with me in prison. You see them now in my writing. You heard it from me when I taught you. These are apostolic Christian things. But listen to this. This peace of God that comes to us, that helps our minds to focus, brings the God of peace to us. It's not just the peace of God. It's God himself who comes to bring that peace to surround us in his care. So as we look at this, some of you are saying, well, this is all great. You know, you talked about how the gospel is great. I don't know the gospel. What is this gospel? What does it mean for me? Well, if I could just come back and look at thinking, let's think about this. Is there anything more true than Jesus Christ? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. He's the most honorable. He's the Lord. He's just. He bore in his body the wrath of God so that we might be justly forgiven. He's absolutely pure. He knew no sin. He is absolutely lovely. He is the most beautiful of all things in the world because he is the very express image of the glorious God in flesh. And on and on the list goes. I conclude because our time is up. Let's finish this way. I'm reminded of uh, a wonderful story that was told by Dr. James Boyce in his commentary on Philippians. He mentions a missionary that went to Nigeria from the United States by the name of Hotchkiss. Hotchkiss was there serving in the very hot land of Nigeria, ministering, and uh, he received one day in the mail a brand new pith helmet. Now, you don't think much about a pith helmet here, but when you're in Africa in the days he was there, it was like... getting an air conditioner for the first time on a hot summer day. Beautifully designed to keep him cool. And he couldn't help but show it to everybody. And as he was showing it around his mission station, he suddenly realized he'd forgotten he had a long trip to get to some place to preach, a church service. He looked at his watch and he realized there was no way he could make it unless he took the shortcut. The way you were supposed to go is to follow along the edge of a wooded area so that you would not be caught out in the plains where all the wild animals would be running. But he said, I'm going to be late. I've got to go and preach. And so he did what he knew he shouldn't do. He cut across the plain, and he started going. He was several minutes into the trip saying, I'm going to make it. I'm going to be on time. And all of a sudden, he felt the ground starting to rumble. And he began to look, and there was a dust cloud coming, and there over the horizon he realized there was a herd of rhinoceroses. I checked the plural on that. That's how you say it. (laughs) Rhinoceroses. There were some 300 in the herd coming straight toward him. And there he was. He knelt down with his new pith helmet on his head. And he said, Lord, I'm coming home. I ask you now to prepare my heart to be with you. And as the thunderous sound of the hooves went by, Two or three minutes later, he's still there. He said, Lord, I can't believe you spared me. 
He just rested in God's hands. And so he left, and he got to, got to the preaching on time. He said, Lord, I don't know why, but I guess you're not done with me yet. Well, a couple years later, a supporting family from Ohio went to Nigeria to see missionary Hotchkiss. And when, while he was there, they were talking, and he said, you know, wait a second. While I'm here, it occurred to me, I'm going to ask you, do you remember a couple years ago, a particular day in your life? I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, back on that day, I actually wrote the date in my Bible. I was shaken in my sleep. I got up, and I couldn't stop praying for you. I don't know what was going on, but I couldn't stop. I just had to pray, and I interceded. I gave my supplications on your behalf. And I thought, now that I'm here, I wondered, was something going on in your life? They compared the date and the time, and it was the precise same moment. And he realized he had found a place of peace. And a brother had found the power of a supplication. And they were reminded of what an extraordinary privilege God's heavenly solutions are for our earthly experiences. This is what you possess, the power of heaven. As you see the unity that the gospel brings, as you see the blessing of prayer, and as you focus your mind on the beauty of Christ, your Savior. Father, would you please bless now these, your servants. We thank you for the cross and the resurrection. May that gospel that has been spoken about become that of each of us, the one who does not know you today. May they cry, Lord Jesus, save me, even as that Philippian jailer did long ago. In Christ's name we pray, amen.